This morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 13. If you'll be turning in your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. Now, if you're careful-eyed, you might realize that is the entire chapter. But I assure you that my sermon will not be exponentially long in accordance with our text for this morning. But it's important that we look at this whole chapter so that we can get a picture of what God is doing in the life of Abram and his nephew, Lot. As you might recognize, I am not Josh. Uh, for those guests uh, among us, just to let you know, our pastor is out, um, recently welcomed his third child into this world, and uh, we're so happy for him. And Christy, is, they uh, stayed home this morning, understandably, but we're praying for them and uh, look forward to their return as well with an extra, extra one in tow. So uh, if you would, we're going to go to God's word now. In Genesis chapter 13, we'll start reading in verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Parasites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt and the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. And look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray as we ask God's blessing on his word this morning. God, we thank you that you have given us this testimony of your faithfulness to your servant, Abraham, God. We pray that you might teach us through this word this morning. Lord, open our hearts. Lord, we um, come from busy weeks. Lord, we come with minds that are consumed with so many things that are going on in our lives. We pray in this time that you may shut all those things out, that we might focus upon you, that we might worship you, Lord, 
as we reflect on your word and that you might show us how we can live more like you through your word. It's the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. Being raised in Tennessee, I uh, grew up listening to bluegrass and to folk music. Now, you, that might not be your favorite kind of music in the world, but these homespun art forms endure. They've lasted a really long time because they take very simple ideas and reach, present them in such a way that reaches deep into the heart. And within bluegrass and folk music, there's a kind of song that I want to talk about. And that's the kind of song that talks about going back to the old home place. These songs take the simple idea of returning to where you grew up. There's something powerful about this idea of returning to a place that has defined who you are today. And there's something about these places that kind of reaches out to us. It seems to call us to come back to them. And resting in a place that confirms your understanding of who you are is something that's very natural. When I talk about this, most of you probably have something in mind, a place that you'd like to go back to. Maybe it's your childhood home and wonderful memories of your family. Or maybe it's a hometown and it's filled with these nuances that bring nostalgia for you. And thinking back, we're, we're almost at 95 years. We're going to be celebrating that next week. We're at 95 years, actually, here with this church. So there's people who have been a part of North Park for years and years, and you're thinking back to memories and places that, you, that you'd like to go back to if you could. Well, in our passage from Genesis, at the beginning and end of the chapter, Abram finds his resting place where he can be a worshiper to God. It's the place where God is worshiped that Abram finds his peace. And as we look at Genesis 13, we're going to see how God's faithful love always draws those who are in, relation, in a relationship with him to reside in a place of fellowship and of worship. Just like for the songwriters, living in that old house came to define who they were in so many different ways, and that's why they wrote songs about it. Being a worshiper of the Lord who has received God's grace through faith, it sends shockwaves through our lives. It defines who we are, and it always calls us to come back, to always come back to a place of worship. So examining our scripture this morning, we're going to find that because God is faithful to his covenant people, we should be guided by our faith in God to give him glory, to mirror his mercy, and to live faithfully in God's security. So first we see that because God has delivered us, he's delivered us to give him glory. It's because our Deliverance declares God's grace that we must return to worship the author of our faith. As we encounter Abram in this passage, we're fresh on the heels of him dealing with the Egyptians. And he finally seems like he's getting back on track. He's gone into a place that posed a lot of danger to him. It was, it was incredibly dangerous. But he's emerged from Egypt as a man who none can doubt that God has his hand of mercy upon what had happened in Egypt just to catch you up? Well, he had lied about his wife. It's not a good place to start, I'll tell you that. He had lied about his wife, but it was very serious because by lying about his wife, he had put everything in danger. God had promised him that he was going to be faithful to him, but, God, but Abram risked everything to cover this up. And as a result, there was all kinds of consequences, 
But God ultimately showed that he was faithful to Abraham. And that no matter what went on, God was not going to break his promise. He has a promise for Abraham, and he's not going to abandon him. So even when Abraham had demonstrated imperfect faith by hiding the identity of his wife, even though it was exposed, God showed that he was always going to be faithful to his covenant promises. Now, what do I mean when I say covenant promises? What do you think of? Most people think of maybe something like a promise, right? And that's a, that's a good way, to, a good start for thinking about covenant because covenant is not less than a promise, but it is far more than a promise. The be, one of the best ways I've heard covenant described is to say that it is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. You see, that God was in a relationship, a covenant relationship with Abram, that he had made covenant promises to him, meant more than simply that he had pronounced that he was going to do something. It meant that he and Abram were now in a relationship. That God had not merely said he's going to do these things to Abram. He's promised that he's actually going to be in relationship with him. That's a powerful thing to think about. And it shows us that God's serious about his promises. He's always faithful to his promises. So verse two describes the riches of Abram. It gives us a picture of a guy who is supremely blessed by God. It talks about his riches. It says he's very rich in livestock and silver and gold. He was well off. And it's with this context that we look at what he does. What do we see this man do? It seems that even the mightiest of kings cannot oppose. Well, verse four tells us, that Abram went to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. After all that had taken place, after all that had taken place, Abram goes back to the place where he worships the author of his faith. What does it tell us about Abram that of all the places he could have gone, all the people he could have talked to, all the things he could have done, Abram knows that he needs to go back to a place of worship. It shows us that after being delivered by the hand of God from a situation that could have been his undoing, Abram realizes that God is the one who deserves to be thanked. God is the covenant maker. Abram is the one who he is using to be a blessing to the world. He's showing his grace through Abram. But it's important to him to go back to this place of worship. How many of you have actually planned and gone through the, the, uh, the joy and the pain of planning a vacation? <laughs> you know, you can spend hours, people spend days, years even, for big vacations, looking at where they want to go. But Abram understands there's a place where he needs to go. It's a place where he has to go, and it's to the place where he can express his function as a worshiper of God, where he can fulfill what he has been called to do, which is to be a God worshiper. How many of you have a computer in your home? And uh, you've, you've seen, you've watched in horror as this new computer slowly becomes slower and slower and slower, and sooner or later it doesn't do the things that it was built to do, 
doesn't things do the things that you got to do very well. It doesn't save things. You can't be sure if it's ever going to work. We're talking about instrument of God to teach you patience, kind of slow. <laughs> and sometimes that's what they are. And maybe it's viruses, maybe it's malware, maybe it's something or the other. But whatever the cause for it, the fact is that when you get to a certain level, extreme case, the only way that you can actually bring this back, this computer back to function, is to restore it to its original state. You have to dig out, to go through your drawers, you have to dig out the CDs and install the operating system again. But the main point is that you have to bring it back to its original state in order, to, in order for it to function as it was designed to do. Now when Abram finds himself having failures of faith and he's doubting God's ability to keep his promises, we're not foolish for asking, how can this be the guy that God has called to be a blessing to the world? How can this be the man that God has said he's going to bless the world through? Now we know that it's Abram's offspring that will be Christ, Jesus himself. But how can this be the man who God has called? Because he's looking a lot more like that old computer that's not really up to the task that it was designed to do. We see that in the aftermath of, fal aftermath of faltering, Abram is confirmed in his purpose as a blessing to the world as he returns to the place that affirms his creative purpose as being a worshiper of God. He's got to come back. He's got to come back to be a worshiper of God because that's what he's designed to do. That's what he was called to do. And by doing what he does, Abram shows that he's asserting that his dedication to the two most fundamental purposes of human existence, to worship and to fellowship. Having been shown God's rescuing grace, Abram is driven to worship the God of his salvation. He's driven to worship the God of his salvation. You know, when our faith falters, often we tend to think of worship as the last thing that we want to do. Have you ever felt that? You ever noticed that somebody disappears from church for a while and you give them a call, you say, you know, oh, you, is everything okay? And they say, you know, I'm just having a hard time. I, I'm not ready to come back to worship yet. Or maybe you felt that same way yourself. Even if you show up, you're not, you don't feel like you're ready to worship God, that you need to sort through some things. Maybe you felt this way. But we see in Abram's example that the covenant child of God should always be drawn back to a place where they can worship the author of their faith. Always have to come back. And you say, you might say to yourself, well, Spencer, that's all fine. That's all good for Abram. You know, he had a supernatural act of God in his life. God moved him and delivered him from his situation. But I'm here to tell you this morning that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sin, God has worked a supernatural miracle in your life. Do you believe that? He has worked a supernatural miracle in your life. He has bound your sin to the cross through the blood of Jesus Christ. He has done something far more incredible than being delivered from the consequences of one lie, like Abram was. He has crucified with Christ a lifetime of sin to the cross for people like you and me. Let your gracious, let your trust in the gracious, redemptive work of Christ draw you back to be a worshiper of him. You are a recipient of his grace if you trusted in him. Let that bring you back always 
to worship him. And it's not just redemption from the consequences of sin. We often talk about the consequences of sin, and that is absolutely core to what Christ has done upon the cross for those who have placed their faith in him. But he's also delivered us from the power of sin. And that's how we can reach out. We can say, look, you don't treat your wife the way that you want to. You know that you don't do that, right? You know that you don't counsel your kids the way that you need to. You know that you struggle with addictions. You know that you struggle with behavior that you know is wrong. We can look and say, you know what? In Christ, he has actually provided a way to be freed from the power of sin controlling your life. And it doesn't mean that we're never going to have problems again. It means that God can actually be present within us to allow us to overcome these things for his glory. And these two bring us, when we see this in our life, as we are transformed to be more like Christ, that too brings us back to a place of worship. So I ask you, what do you do when you experience a failure of faith? What do you do? You know, even if we acknowledge that God's faithful to us, we can still run to other stuff, other things. We can run to people in our lives. We can run to our spouse. We can run to possessions. We think, oh, if I have that boat, that'll ease my heart. We can run to our jobs and busyness. And you see, none of these, thing, none of these things are inherently wrong. It's not wrong to, have a, to be close in your relationship with your spouse. You, you better be. It's not wrong to have possessions. Abram was a rich man, we're told. It's not wrong to be busy at work. But it is wrong to substitute these things in a way that they were never designed to be. You see, you were designed to be in a relationship with your creator. In all of these things, good as they might be, when properly viewed in, in light of who God is and your relationship with him, and that all of these things are given to you to steward, and we're going to get to that in just a moment, but viewed in light of that, you were made for more than these things. You were created to worship and to be in fellowship with your God. So I ask you to return always to worship the author of your faith. So having seen how our lives are always to return to worship the author of our faith and remembering the grace that has brought us deliverance, we can explore how this relationship with God impacts the way that we relate to others. Because we've, been, we've received so much grace from God, it has to, it must impact the way that we relate to other people. So we see that not only has God delivered us so that we can give him glory, he's also delivered us so that we can mirror his mercy. He's delivered us so that we may mirror God's mercy. Because our worship praises God for his mercy, we may ought to always be agents of mercy and love for others. After we've been treated to this image of Abram, worshiping God, we're rapidly transitioned into an account of how Lot and Abram came to be separated. And the basis for the division that occurs is uh, rooted in the fact that Lot and Abram have so many possessions, they have so much stuff to manage, so much livestock, and the, the, the um, arduous task of day-to-day -day upkeep was challenged due to li limited resources. And on top of that, their workers are fighting with each other. So what we see here is that uh, it's not so much an issue of Lot and Abram having a hatred for each other, a disagreement with each other. It's more to the fact that they realize that they need to come to a resolution with these circumstances if they're going to be at peace with each other in the long term. So Abram's response comes very quickly and is absolutely 
remarkable. Look with me, if you will, back to verses 8 and 9. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you separate yourself from me? If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. And we'll stop there. You see, Abram presented Lot with a choice that sounds like it's too good to be true. Has anybody ever taken you and said, oh, just point to what you want and I'll give it to you? <laughs> Never happened to me. <laughs> Why did Abram do this for Lot? Why did he do this? Did he have to? Absolutely not. By giving his by giving his nephew Lot the choice of land, Abram was showing sacrificial love. He was showing, showing sacrificial love. As a man who had only a few verses earlier been at a place of worship, he was worshiping God after being delivered from Egypt, Abram would have been acutely aware of God's mercy in his life. And although his nephew could not possibly ever have earned the kind of gift that Abram was giving him, Abram was conferring upon him a priceless gift of God's mercy. He was extending the mercy that had been given to him to Lot. Now, if Abram is the positive example here, we also see a negative example in the life of his nephew. Those loving traits that Abram shows in offering Lot his choice of land, they're turned on their head and how Lot lets his self-centeredness lead him to pick the best even if it's at the expense of his uncle. Verse 11 tells us, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. After coming so far, they come through Egypt together. After coming through so much together, these two men, Abram and Lot, are finally separating ways. This is important for us to see how they go. And the difference of hearts really shows us how uh, these two men parted ways. Abram chooses to give more than he is bound, while Lot chooses to take more than he ought. Abram chooses to give more than he is bound, while Lot chooses to take more than he ought to. It's a powerful contrast here. Have you ever had a, uh, a family-style meal? Some of you are probably raised having family-style meals. Now, what does that mean? If you haven't had one, it's simply that you take each item of food and you pass it around the table, right? So if I was handed a um, bucket of fried chicken, I'm going to take one piece, maybe two, and I'm going to pass it on to, to my left or my right so that everybody can get a chance to have a bit of the food that's been prepared, right? Now, we've got Thanksgiving coming up, right? And uh, I don't know about you, but my family uh, history is uh, one of fixing those, those classic dishes. You've got to have a turkey. You've got to have green bean casserole and uh, sweet potato casserole and all of those wonderful items to share. Now, imagine that you're at a get-together with friends and family. It's family style. And you're sitting in the second best position at the table, which is, you know, number one has to go to mom because she works so hard to prepare all of that but you're in the second best position and you're handed the turkey and you get yours, but you decide you don't want to pass that turkey along. 
And you watch as the faces of the other people at the table drop a little. And then you repeat that with your green bean casserole and your sweet potato casserole. And before you know it, everyone at the table is mad at you. Why would they be mad at you? We see in this context, you are never handed a bowl of food with the expectation that you're going to hold on to it. When God lavishes his love on his children, he does not give blessings. He does not give his love with the expectation that we grip it tightly without an interest in showing his love to others. Abram has been the object of God's undeserved love. And so he chooses to pass this grace along to Lot. The kind of love that Abram shows is excessive. Some would even call it reckless. How can he do something like this? It's because Abram shows that he has the heart of a true worshiper. The more that we exalt the Lord for his unwarranted love, the more eager we should grow to extend his love to others. In 1 John chapter 4, the apostle John writes in verses 8 through 11, that anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, that we have not loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that's the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Do we treat God's blessing as though it's something to hoard, to hold on to? You see, Abram can, what's, what's the reason that Abram can give so freely? Well, it's because Abram is confident in God's covenant promise to him. So he can give Lot his choice as an act of sacrificial love. And yet be sure all the time that God has promised him that he will not be frustrated in his promises for him. So I ask you, do we not treat God's blessing in such a way as to say, you know what, God, you gave it to me. I'm so thankful for you. We'll, we'll have time of Thanksgiving uh, in just a few weeks now. And we'll go around the table, some of us, and we'll thank God for this. Thank you for my family, Lord. Thank you for my job and all my possessions. God, you are the one who gave this to me. But in the same breath, unspoken, we say, God, you gave it to me, but I will hold on to it by my own will, my own strength, will grip tightly the things that God has given me. And we take it under our control to, to be the uh, masters of what we have been blessed with to the extent that we do not seek to give it out. We do not seek to bless others, but we seek, simply seek to hold on to what God has given us and what he never intended for us to grip so tightly as we do. And you might say, well, I don't have a lot of stuff. Every relationship it's been given to you by God. A lot of you are going to be around these holidays. You're going to be around family members. And uh, you might say, well, Spencer, you don't know my family members. I don't see them as a blessing from God. <laughs> but think about it. You've been given God's grace. You've been given God's grace. You've seen what it is to be forgiven by the Lord through the work of Christ, one who laid down his life for you. The Bible tells us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You've seen what true love is in your life. 
You've seen what God's grace is to give you food on your table, to give you a place to, to live. You've seen his love so clearly shown in your life. God has shown you so much grace. We must turn to those, even, that, even those who are, it's hard to love, and give and love extravagantly. Abram loved Lot sacrificially. Let's follow his example and realize we, we are called as ones who have received such grace by God to show such love and grace to others that they would see that we are servants of Christ, to see that we are lovers of God and to be drawn to say, look, this is, this is exceptional. This is extravagant. This doesn't make any sense that you would love me like you are. You say, this is because God has loved me so much. It allows us to share the gospel with others. It allows us to have opportunities to, to worship God and to glorify him that we otherwise would never have. And so we're brought always to be worshipers of God as we mirror God's mercy. As we mirror God's mercy, as we reflect what he has given us and our love for others. So understanding that worship occurs in the context of God's mercy, we know that we ought to show others mercy and love through our lives. As we continue in our text, we're going to see that the mercy giver, that's God, has unshakably been faithful to us and that we may live in obedience as we rest in assurance. That we might live in obedience as we rest in assurance. So we see that we've been delivered to give God glory and to mirror his mercy. But lastly, we see that we've been delivered to live faithfully in God's security because God's promise brings security for us. Our obedience ought to be married to our assurance. After Abram has done something that is, to an outsider, looks like absolute madness. It's craziness. It's a supreme act of foolishness by giving his nephew Lot the best land. Abram is visited by the Lord. And he speaks to him in verses 14 through 17. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot is separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the land, through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Knowing the heart of Abram and the significance of what he had just done in giving this land to Lot, God speaks to Abram of his promise. He wants to reassure Abram of his promise, for it's through God's promise that Abram is guided to find security. The certainty of Abram's future rests in his relationship with God. It doesn't rest in his possessions. It doesn't rest in the amount of men that he had in his army or his, uh, that would go fight for him. It doesn't rest in his connections. It doesn't rest in anything else other than his relationship with God. What a contrast to the way that Lot would live his life, the way that Lot finds his sense of security. You see, Abram gives Lot his choice. And Lot chooses what looks better, but is destined for destruction. You see, that's false security. God tells Abram where he will go. And Abram walks in faith, 
drawing ever closer to God's promise. That's true security. What a difference. Having seen that God's promise brings security, we can examine how obedience ought to be married to assurance. So we look in verse 18, we're told of how Abram responds to God's promise. This is important that we see this here. This is the reason that we read the entire chapter this morning instead of just a few verses. So let's pay attention here. As we see in verse 18, it says, So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This first records, while having completed his survey that God had commanded, Abram settles to rest in the land where he would make a place of worship. You see, where Abram's assurance leads to obedience that is demonstrated in his worship of God. You know, the other day I was uh, driving, I was actually driving here uh, for, to, to work during the week, and uh, I needed gas for my car. Uh, and I was looking for a place that was along the way. And uh, if I name the gas station, most of you will probably know it. It's along the way uh, from my drive from Oviedo to here. And uh, it looked like it had a great price on the signboard. I decided to, to pull in. And I hopped out and started pumping gas. And I looked over and I suddenly realized the price I was being charged was not what was up on the board. In fact, it was a lot higher than what I had thought it was going to be. How likely do you think I'm to go back to that gas station? <laughs> well, and even if I do, how likely do you think I am to trust that what it says in the sign is going to be what's on the pump? You see, if I don't have assurance, I can't act with confidence. If I don't have assurance, I can't act with confidence. In contrast to that, God's assurance will never be let down. So actions based on his promises can be made with absolute confidence. What he says he will do, he will always do. And that's good news because we can't live with assurance. If we, we can't have assurance rather. And without it, we can't act with confidence. If we don't have assurance, we can't act with confidence. It's such an amazing blessing to know that God's promise is never false. Most of us have been hurt by people who have made promises to us only to fail us. And they may have promised us different things. Perhaps they promised you love. They promised you happiness. Promised you comfort. And you watched as slowly your confidence faded into desperation. So you realize that they failed you. Did you know that you can share in the blessing that it talks about Abraham receiving? Abraham is promised in this passage. God declares that he, that Abram's offspring will be made a multitude who will receive an everlasting inheritance. This promise was ultimately realized in the person and work of Christ. Both God and man, Jesus came to redeem those of every tribe and tongue and nation. If you will forsake your self-trust, your self-reliance, and trust in Christ to save you from your sin, as you turn away from your sinfulness and turn towards loving obedience to God's commands, you will become a recipient of a blessing that will not disappoint. It will never forsake you because it has a basis for confidence. And that's the assurance of what God has accomplished through Christ. 
Some of you may never have experienced assurance. You may go through life with an anxious mind, always wondering, always fretful and worrisome of what will come because you've never trusted in the one who, is, who cannot fail you. Even I will fail myself. Even you will fail yourself. But Christ cannot and Christ will not. Through this passage this morning, God's word has shown us that through Abram, as the covenant child of God, has demonstrated how we should give God glory, we should mirror his mercy, and how we we rest in in faithful lives because of the security that God gives us. As we've approached the account of Abram, separating from Lot, we've examined how Abram's life of faith was bound up in his identity as a worshiper of God. It's Abram's testimony in Genesis chapter 13 that we've read this morning that his faithfulness to his covenant people means that we should be guided by a life of faith to live uh, out worship, to live out love, and to live out obedience. Regardless of how complicated life gets, because life will get complicated. It is, it's hard. We can be shown by Abram's example that our identity must begin and end as worshipers of God. That's why we read the whole chapter. It begins and it ends with worship of God. You know, I spoke at the beginning of our time of those American folk songs that talk about going back to the old home place. And some of them are happy songs. Some of them are joyful remembrances of these places. But most of them, interestingly, have a message. They look at the consequences of wandering away from the place that defines who you are. Uh, One of those songs has these words to offer. It says, now the geese fly south as the cold wind blows. As I stand here and hang my head, I've lost my love. I've lost my home. And now I wish that I was dead. You see, it's hopeless. A life that is divided from fellowship and worship of God is filled with hopelessness. I invite you to come and find your purpose like Abram did as a worshiper of the Lord. To turn away from sin. To turn to Christ. And to trust in his power to save you from the hopelessness of eternal judgment and separation from God. Now, if you know Christ, if you already walk in faith day by day, you may say, Spencer, what does this mean for me? How do you show that you are a worshiper of God? Are you, as you lift, exalt God for his, who he is and what he has done for you, do you show this mercy that he's been given, that's been given to you, to others in your life, your family, your friends? Do you redeem each relationship with you ha- that you have for God's glory? Do you redeem each item that he's given you in your home, each moment that he's given you in your life for his glory? Do you mirror that in your life? Perhaps you struggle with the anxious mind that I talked about before. Let the confidence that you have not begin by looking inward. That's what our world tells us, right? In order, to be, to, in order to get over anxiety and our lack of confidence, we need to turn inward and tell ourselves that uh, we are better than 
um, we think we are, that somehow we boost our self-confidence enough and our self-esteem enough that we will no longer have these problems. The truth is that we can only begin to conquer an anxious mind by looking to Jesus for the assurance that he brings. And that will utterly change our lives when we start to do that. So as I close, I want to ask one final question. Is, does your identity as a worshiper of God define who you are? Or is it simply something that you do once each week? When my body is laid in the cold ground and they place a stone at my head, could they rightfully inscribe on that stone, here lies a worshiper of God. Here lies Spencer, a worshiper of God. Could they inscribe that on your tombstone one day? Does your life begin and end as a worshiper of the one true God? Find your purpose in this. Realize that it brings so much richness to life to realize your purpose and to realize the mercy that you've been given and to live in light of it. If you will bow with me in prayer.